We are at a point in the Luke, the Gospel of Luke, where we're nearing the point when Jesus gives his life for us. And uh, we're going to get into chapter 21, verses uh, 5 through 8, or 38. And it's going to be an interesting passage to go through. It's going to take me three weeks to do this. There is a lot in this passage, but it is rich with a lot for us to mine, if you will. So let me open us up with a word of prayer and then We'll start to go into chapter 21 and the Olivet Discourse. Father, we lift up our time this morning and we're thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful that we get a chance now to hear Jesus as he talks with his disciples. Close to some of the last conversations he's going to have with them. So there's some importance to things that he's sharing with them that we need to understand and embrace. So help us do that this morning. We pray your spirit is going to help me to help you do that very thing. So we pray it for Jesus and his sake and his name. Amen. Luke. Chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. I'm going to, now there is a handout in the back. And at the top of that handout, I've got some parallel passages in Matthew and Mark. And occasionally I'm going to be referencing either from a distance or next week, probably a little bit more heavily, into those passages because they're all talking about this thing we titled the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to read all of the verses in, in the passage this morning just to kind of set the stage. We're only going to cover the first 19 today. So turn with me to Luke chapter 21 verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when, therefore, will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances 
do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear in the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, Recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day, will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying 
that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Amen. There's a lot there. It's exciting. Well, it's not exciting enough to get this going. It's up. Ah, there we go. It isn't registering, but okay. Um, here's an outline. And I've got it broken up in such a way that it's going to kind of give you a glimpse for how I'm going to go through this passage. So the very first three things up there we're going to cover this morning. We're going to set the stage. There's going to be some, some questions, and then Jesus is going to respond with some signs that are going to happen before the end, and he's going to have a, a section where he talks about persecution. Next week, we're going to talk about a picture of the end, a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. Spoiler alert about Jerusalem, and there's another following uh, passage that talks about the end, the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus. And then the third week, there's a parable, which is really good, and we're going to spend some time on that, and it's got a lot of good application points in it. Let me kind of set the stage first here. Can you back me up one? Oh, you can't. Never mind. I'm going to skip that slide because they told me it's too hard to see in the back. Uh, when we used it during the preach team prep, we were rehearsing it in the, the fellowship area. It seemed to be okay. I'm going to use it mostly next week, and I'm going to use it to contrast the Matthew and the Luke passage next to each other side by side. So, am I missing a slide? Yeah, okay. Let me back up here. Uh, before we get into it, there's a quote. There's going to be a couple of quotes that I'm going to be referencing. This is, this is one of them. And it's... it's it says, and to me it's got one of the main points of the whole passage in it, and I've underlined that. And you have a, a, a space on your sheet to type in or write in whatever you want with regards to what's underlined there. But listen to what this says. Whenever the Bible talks about what theologians call eschatology, or the end, the study of the end times, its concern is ethics. It's our behavior. It's how we live right now. We, we don't normally think of it that way, all right? But that's its intent. 
prophecy, Bible teaching about the future or about the end, is always practical. That's another thing that we just don't think about when we think about prophecy. It's always practical. It's always designed to teach us how we are to live in the here and now, how we are to serve the Lord right now. Jesus gave these prophecies to encourage his disciples then and now to persevere doing so if need be unto death. Jesus did not want persecution or rejection of the gospel to surprise his disciples. So keep that in mind as we're going through the passages in the next three weeks. Constantly we need to be asking the question, well, what does this, what does this mean to me today? There was a a New Testament scholar, when I first started prepping, that had, had this written down, which, which kind of set me back. He said, the so-called Olivet Discourse recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke has been the subject of more scholarly debate than perhaps any other passage in the Gospels. The fact is, we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the knotty problems of the Olivet Discourse. Study of it requires a proper humility and a willingness to admit that we do not have all the answers. Well, I can tell you right now, I don't have all the answers, okay? But there is a number of things that I think we can get answers to And Jesus spoke this to his disciples for a reason. He didn't speak it to confuse them. He spoke it to prepare them. And that's how we should be looking at the passage. So let me set the stage here and do a little bit of context. In the sequence of things, In the Gospels, in Matthew, just before this, Jesus had just finished the eight woes to the leaders. In our Luke passages, we saw with Brian in the last few weeks some of the challenging things he was interacting with the the Pharisees and the scribes on. Jesus and the disciples had just left the temple, as we saw last week, He was in the temple with the disciples, and at the very end of last week, Brian took us through his observation about the widow putting money in the treasury, big trumpets where they dropped the money. The Olivet Discourse, this discourse, it's called the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse is happening just before Christ's crucifixion. And the disciples were admiring the temple and making some comments about it. The first temple, as you've heard sometimes, a number of times over the last year or so, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. It was rebuilt 70 years later by Zerubbabel in 516 BC when the Jews came back to Jerusalem from Babylon. 
The temple was being refurnished right now in this passage by Herod, a new foundation and enlarged temple area. White marble stones, huge. I mean, these things are hard to imagine were what was used in this refurbishing, re reconstruction effort. And it's important, Jesus says, that what you're marveling at, disciples, it's impressive, but it's not eternal. And it's all coming down. So let's, let's get into the passage and watch how Jesus discusses what's going to what's going to go on here. Part of the context is this temple. While, verse 5, while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive, votive gifts. And he says, as for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Now, I would think, that that would really grab your attention because, like I said, these are huge stones. Not only are these huge stones, this temple, this rebuilt one, was much larger than the one that was done by Zerubbabel in 516. Like maybe even sometimes twice as big. Here's some, here's some facts about that temple. It covered approximately one-sixth of the whole old city of Jerusalem. It was about 36 acres big as part of his refurbishing. Herod started the work in 19 BC and he only completed it in 63 AD. So they're looking at a construction project, if you will, that has a fair amount of work that's been done. And it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's got white marble that has been polished. It's got gold all over the place. When it was being built, Herod had a thousand vehicles to carry the stone to the site. And he recruited 10,000 workmen. These were Jewish workmen under the supervision of a thousand priests to do the work. Just amazing size, amazing beauty. And when it says it was adorned, the word that's used is really the same word that we have today that says cosmetics. Just like a woman would use cosmetics to adorn her face, this building was adorned and decorated in a fantastic way. And the votive, when it says votive gifts, they were gifts that the Jews gave and they were associated with when they made vows to God. Then those vows were consecrated with a gift. It was a practice, actually, that was done in a number of pagan religions. And Jesus says, okay, days are going to come in which there will not be left one stone upon another. It's all going to be torn down. And he's very emphatic. Uh, he's more emphatic in some of the other Gospels about this than he is in this passage. But he's emphatic. It's all going to be 
torn down. Now, as the story goes, in 70 AD, a Roman general, Titus, ordered his soldiers, he actually ordered them not to destroy the temple, but in the heat of battle, a soldier threw a torch into a building and he ignited the flammable tapestries inside. The gold plating on the inner walls melted and seeped into the cavities between the stones, and the Romans removed the stones in order to get at the gold. That's, that's what happened. Now we'll hear some more about that next week. We need to remember, too, this is not the first time Jesus made this prediction. He warned them in the Gospel of Luke twice before. Twice before, in chapter 13, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then again, in Luke chapter 19, which is just a couple of sermons ago before this, He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So while these prior announcements were that the holy city Jerusalem would be destroyed. He specifically now mentions the destruction of the magnificent temple. Now, it's on the Mount of Olives. Luke doesn't say that. But if you take a look at some of the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, they describe that after He had this observation with them about the widow, and then he made the comment. They then went up to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples approached him about what he had said. So, 21, verse 7. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when, therefore, will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now I put a copy of this and the other two corresponding passages from Matthew and Mark. I put them on your handout so you could see a little bit of the contrast that I'm trying to help you with. And it's important, and I would recommend that during the week, you spend some time going and look at also, reread this and look at the, the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark. I want you to be like the Bereans. I want you to be in. You can say, yes, this is what it says, this is not what it says. Now, they're not all the same, 
they don't all address the same thing necessarily. They address some things in common and some things not. There's actually a number of questions that are being asked if you look at all the passages together. And that's what really describes the full conversation that happened with Jesus and the disciples. So look at the difference. Luke and Mark are really, really pretty close. Mark says, tell us when will these things be and what will the sign be when all these things are going to be fulfilled. But Matthew is a little bit different. Matthew, the disciples said, they came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen? That's the same. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're asking same and more questions. So one of the things we would do is we would say, well, what are these things? He opened up these things in 21.6 by saying these things, and the context clearly refers to the temple. So the question Lucas focused on is the disciples' concern of when the temple would be destroyed. They didn't question Jesus that it would be destroyed. They just wanted to know when this would happen. But if we include Matthew's questions, the disciples really asked possibly three questions. When will the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple occur? What is the sign of his coming? And what is the sign for the end of the age? Now, we're not going to answer those all this morning, okay? Most of that's going to take place next week when we get into the prophecies. Let me give you just a little brief discussion on Jewish eschatology because I think it provides a little bit of a backdrop for what might have been going on in the disciples' head their heads when they're asking these questions. It goes as follows. The Jews of the first century had a fairly well-developed eschatology as it related to their expectations regarding the Messiah. However, as alluded to above, their timing of when the events would take place was very mistaken. They did not see the intervening church age which makes perfect sense because there was no church in existence before Acts 2. They also did not see two comings of the Messiah. They expected one arrival in which he would be triumphant over their enemies, which is why they were jubilant at the triumphal entry. And recall also, while they did attribute incredible powers to the Messiah, for the most part, the Jews were not expecting the Messiah to be God. Son of David? Yes, but not God. So the following list of events is what Jesus expected, or what the Jews expected when the Messiah arrived. And although their, chron their eschatology and chronology, the order of things, was was close, it's still far removed from what will transpire at the second coming of the Messiah. That's 
that's probably driving some of their, their questions. Verse 8, he starts to answer. Jesus says, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So he's really saying there's going to be some false messiahs. And this very first this very first response by him in verse 8 is important. It's a, big, it's a big point that Jesus is making. Don't be fooled. He predicts the future, but he makes a big emphasis using this as the very first thing that he wants to impress on them. Don't be misled. Keep your eyes open. Watch, evaluate, test, try the spirits. Really, for us, it's pay attention to what's been written, not what's in the newspapers. The worst thing you can do with your end times theology is use the newspapers to drive what you think is happening or will happen. Use the word. Use what Jesus is telling us here in these passages. And he says false messiahs are going to come. Many, he uses the word many will come. And not only false messiahs, many will come. They will mislead many. Now, if you go back through history, you actually see this starting to happen as early. Hebert says the first person after the time of Jesus definitely known to have claimed to be the Messiah was Bar Kokhba, the leader of the last great Jewish revolt in AD 132. And there's been a number through the years, some recent ones that many of you will probably recognize from the news include Sun Myung Moon, considered the unification church by the within the unification church as the Messiah and the second coming of Christ. Jim Jones claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus, Buddha, Vladimir, Lenin, and Father Divine prior to leading a mass suicide of his father followers. Marshall Applewhite claimed to be Jesus and the Son of God prior to leading his Heaven's Gate cult mass suicide with the rendezvous to a spaceship. <laughs> the leader of the Branch Davidian religious sect uh, in Waco, Texas, David Carell, he claimed to be the Son of God, the Lamb. False messiahs. So they've been going on through the years. 
It's not anything, <coughs> if you will, new. The point is, they're going to happen, and Jesus' command, it's in the imperative, is do not go after them. Then he goes into social and civil turmoil and wars. And then there's natural disasters, catastrophic events. When you get into the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, they call this stuff the birth pangs. And there has been and will be a number of wars that have taken place and will take place. This concept of the birth pangs and these issues that he's calling out here is not that they will occur, but the intensity of them will occur. Here's, here's a statistic I came across in one of the commentaries by Kent Hughes. He says, it's been historically documented in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, there have only been 268 years that have seen no war. Lots of wars have been happening and will happen. But again, Jesus is telling us that this is going to happen, and as he's answering their question, when we look at the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, and they use the term birth pangs, that's an indication that the intensity of these things is going to increase. Frequency and intensity will become profound. There will be no question. But notice how he ends in verse 9. But the end does not follow immediately. Okay? So the end is still out there somewhere, but along the way, these things are going to be taking place. And the end is the end of the age. So things lead up to the end. The end means a completion, a consummation, a goal achieved, a result attained. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to have terrors and signs from heaven. I mean, when you think about signs from heaven, I think it, whatever that's going to be, it's going to be as if it came from God. And so it's going to be really something. I don't think we've had that. We have had some of these natural disasters. We've had earthquakes through the years. We've had volcanic eruptions through the years. Those things are happening, but they're going to increase in number. They're going to increase in intensity. Then he goes on. And we get to verses 12 through 19. Now pay attention. This is, this is when we're just kind of reading through Scripture. 
we kind of miss some of the key things that happen in the scripture. Notice how this starts. But, okay, so there's a contrast. Before all these things, now what are these things? It's probably what was talked to prior. Before those things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So there's going to be persecution. Now, actually, there was, right after Christ rose from the dead, there was persecution, and it came from, first, the Jews. The Jews were persecuting those who followed Christ. Persecution is something we don't like, right? We don't like. We don't want to experience it. Uh, One of the guys said, we're actually very risk-averse as people. So we we don't want that stuff. But Jesus is saying, you're going to get some of that stuff. Paul's last words to Timothy was, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is going to go on. This is going to go on not only before Jerusalem is destroyed. It's going to go on after, and it's been going on for years and years and years. Here's another example. In the years A.D. 33 through 1900, approximately 14 million martyrs of Christians occurred. 14 million in 1900 years. In the 20th century, 26 million. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all the years since the time of Christ before the 20th century combined. Now there's an increase in number and intensity. And it says they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you. Who is they? Well, in this case, at first, it's going to be the Jews. They're going to persecute you. They're going to bring you before the synagogues. A lot of that happened. They're going to lay hands on you. That terminology is used a lot in Acts. A lot of the situations that we read about here with the persecution issues are things that happened that we see documented in Acts. 
but it didn't stop. It still continues to this day. Hopefully they remember Jesus' promises from the Sermon on the Mount. Three times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells them they're going to be persecuted. That's us too. Sermon on the Mount. It says, uh, those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me in my name. And third, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they that persecuted the prophets who were before you. He has constantly been reminding his followers persecution for his name's sake. His name's sake means on account of my name, because you are my followers. There's a, there's a passage that kind of startled me when we were studying Philippians that says the following, when he's writing to the church in Philippi, chapter 1, he says in verse 28, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And I thought about that, and I'm like, granted to us? Like, it's something good for us. It's something good that happens. Even though it doesn't feel good, it's the way God designed it. And Jesus is reminding his disciples here, again, on the Mount of Olives, this is going to happen. And then it, it ends with a little bit of a, a question mark, unless we think about it. You will be betrayed even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. So you're going to die. But then he says in verse 18, not a, head of, a hair of your head will perish. Well, wait a minute. Is he, is he contradicting himself? No. He used the word perish. And what he's trying to indicate to them, to them is the same thing he did along the way a number of times. You may lose your life physically, but you will not lose your life eternally. Think about other passages. Luke 13, 3 and 5. Unless you repent, you will perish. Or John 3.16, whoever believes will not perish. doesn't say you aren't going to die. It just says you're not going to perish, which is the more spiritual sense of what Jesus is trying to convey here. So, 
big so what. All right? Now remember, the very first at the beginning, one of the main points was prophecy is always practical. It is, it is with regards to what you need to be thinking about and living here and now. Here's the four commands that are laced throughout the passage. Don't be misled. Don't go after false messiahs. Don't go after them, period. Don't even think about it. And as we saw with some of the examples, there's catastrophic results if you do. Don't be terrified. When we hear about wars and other things that are going on, we're commanded not to be terrified. Now, I don't think he's, he's saying grit your teeth and just kind of work your way through it. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's, he's pretty much with the understanding you're going to have the Holy Spirit. And if you use the Holy Spirit and God's word, you won't be terrified. So don't be surprised by it. Don't be misled by certain people. And don't be terrified by things that may be going on. Because it is going to happen. Here's some closing thoughts also by a commentator named Daryl Bach, who just has a really good tome on Luke that he wrote. And he's got a lot of good, uh, good things that he helped uncover for me. But here's some thoughts of his that I think are very appropriate to close on. So listen carefully. I've, on, your, on your handouts, at the end of this, this uh, comment, you'll see some key points that I think are good for us to walk away with. Here's his thoughts. In thinking through how this text addresses our era, several questions need attention. We need to carefully address how this text addresses both the short-term and long-term issues. The issues of persecution and false messianic claims spans the centuries. They remain as possibilities for the saints as long as the final vindication has not yet arrived. Only one main feature has changed. The Jewish character of the persecution of Christians is for the most part no longer with us. Opposition of the gospel comes from a variety of corners, but being brought before synagogues is not one of them. Only those who come from Jewish roots might see something like this in terms of rejection. The passage addresses the entire period from the time Jesus spoke until he returns. His followers live in a world where he is not physically present and where rejections and suffering may well come with the decision to believe. Jesus' discourse here serves to reassure us, believers, that God is advancing his plan. The events of AD 70 show, as we look back at them, God was 
and still is directing the affairs of the human race. I think there's times when we kind of forget that. We kind of get frustrated. I don't know about you, but I do. When I watch what's happening today, not only around the world, but especially in America, I lose sight that God is still in control and he's directing the affairs of the human race. Now in this passage, the severe character of the judgment reveals how serious God is about sin and unfaithfulness. As painful as the fall of Jerusalem was, it's nothing compared to the judgment to come. This feature gives this text its theological power. Our culture tends to minimize the authority of God to punish unrighteousness. Yet that theme is one of the more important notes raised in this passage. And that is true. I mean, you see that more and more today, that the culture minimizes not only the authority of God, but is there even a God? When it comes to God's predicting the future, our culture, again, has a love-hate relationship. On one hand, the popularity of astrology and other strategies of reading the future show how entranced people are with the prospects of things being faded. On the other hand, many view detailed predictions of doom with some skepticism. They question whether Jesus made any such predictions since they limit him to a role as a religious teacher of wisdom. This text is significant because it shows how Jesus testified to a coming judgment and a future vindication of the saints. His life and death are much more than moral legacy. He will return to judge, and judgment is serious business. But now here, here is what I think we should walk away with. The church is not called to enforce dominion on those around it. Rather, we, as a community of believers, will suffer as Christ did until he returns. To forget we bear a cross and not a sword in this era is to abandon a basic aspect of our calling. Our calling is to proclaim, reflect, and serve Jesus. I think that's important to remember. Only in the end will we be rescued from pain and rejection. Anybody, any theology that promotes the triumph of the church outside the return of Jesus forgets where the source of vindication resides. He's the one who brings the victory, not us. Those who are not prepared to stand as witnesses before the world do not understand the call, the call God gives to his church. And then here's his final comment, which is appropriate. Many times, I'm always bumping into people. I just did this past week because I brought up this topic. I bump into people and they just don't want to deal with, with end times prophecy. They either say it's too controversial, or they say, 
I can never get it straight, or I'm just not sure it's really ever going to happen that way. That's, that's the typical response. And so people ignore it. But I would suggest we ignore it at our peril. It very much relates back to what Jesus said. Don't be misled. Well, here's his final point. One, one final feature is important to note about the teaching on the end times. It's specific enough to keep us watching, but general enough that we should never succumb to the tendency to predict exactly when Jesus will appear. God wants us to watch diligently, but such a watch does not mean he desires the church to figure out exactly when he will return. Now, there are some ministries that are full-time trying to do that. And I don't think that's Jesus' intent. So when the disciples posed such a specific question to Jesus in Acts 1.6, Acts 1.6 is just before Jesus is going to be going up to heaven, he gathers them together and he commands them not to leave Jerusalem. And in verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? We all know his answer, right? It's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what you're supposed to do. They ask him a specific question. He answers by telling them, mind your own business, live out your calling faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not for you to know the times or dates. We know he's coming back for us and we should keep watching with anticipation. In the meantime, there is plenty of work for the church to do. Amen? So we're going to study it. We're going to look at it. We're going to pay attention to it because it's here. We didn't deal with it as a topic. It's part of the sequences we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And it's a very important part of Luke. And we need to pay attention. We need to listen. We need to understand. And then there's some things that we need to do today as we wait for Jesus to return.